This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. When we opened the show today on London Live, we talked about everybody being charged up about something, whether it was U.S. politics, federal politics in this country, minor hockey and minor soccer. Let's close out the show talking with Tom Partalis. And Tom is the president of the London Optimus Sports Centre, and they operate the BMO Centre here in London. And they have been dealing with how do we go through the new orders that are coming from the Middlesex London Health Unit when we're dealing with indoor soccer. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Mike. Tom, we did hear from Dr. Chris Mackey less than an hour ago that there was still some opportunity to talk with whether it is operators of facilities or whether it is people who are running minor sports organizations and perhaps make some changes to those orders. You've been talking a lot about this today. How have those discussions gone? What sorts of things have you been talking about? Well, we, I have talked to um, uh, Chris Mackey this morning um, and we discussed a few of the, um, uh, you know, a, a few of the cases here in London, and uh, we just want to uh, make sure that some of the restrictions that he put forth are going to be modified. And uh, in order for us to stay open, and in order for us to um, carry on as as before. And what kind of a reception do you feel you received? I think he was uh, uh, very candid, and uh, he did say that he will look into it, and he will let us know by tomorrow uh, if he's going to make some changes or modifications to his restrictions. So uh, I'm optimistic um, that he will um, look into everything that we said today, and uh, hopefully he can come up with a, a better plan than what we have now, because the plan that it is in place now, Mike, it's not working. It's not going to work for us. It, we're a facility that we've been here for almost 10 years. And uh, uh, if we have to follow those restrictions, which is 10 people per field, um, you have to have a distance of three meters between players. Um, the the uh, fields have to be uh, 27 feet apart before uh, you can play. Uh, it, there's too many restrictions, and uh, we we can't have league games. We cannot have scrimmages. Um, it just we're going back to phase two and phase one, which is just strictly uh, personal training. So uh, this is not going to work for our place, and I'm sure it's not going to work for a lot of the other places in London. So uh, unless they come up with a with a new um, uh, protocol and um, uh, a new plan, I, I don't see it uh, working for us at all. Tom Partal is joining us, president of the London Optimus Sports Centre. They operate the BMO Centre in London, and you think about how much soccer is played inside there. It's a beautiful facility. It almost still feels brand new. But, Tom, when you look at the the way that things are, are laid out, if we go back to the way that things have been going could you continue the way things had been going before these new orders were announced yesterday? And could things have worked that way? Yes, absolutely. That's what we were planning on, and that's how we made our 
our um, uh, registrations this year, we had to follow all the provincial protocols and uh, all the uh, Ontario soccer protocols, which calls for a bubble of 50 players per the division. And that's how we structure our schedule. So we don't allow more than 12 players per team. So of a total of 48, so we're two players below the allowable 50. But if they cut us down to 10, then all those leagues will have to fold. Uh, there will be a huge financial, economical impact on our facility because now we have to deal with all the refunds that we have to give um, uh, the, the people back. Uh, we, we're just uh, inundated right now we, uh, and overwhelmed with the phone calls that people are placing to our office and the emails saying, you know, um, are you guys going to reopen? Are, you know, are you going to, are we getting the refunds back? You know, like, Mike, it's been terrible. If, if we would have known over a week ago or two weeks ago, we would have made different plans. But because we just started our indoor uh, season uh, three days ago, Monday night. And then all of a sudden, uh, Wednesday at 2 o'clock, we're getting this uh, announcement from the uh, uh, from the health unit. And uh, as I said, it just it devastated us completely. We, you know, we, and there's no timeline to say, um, okay, you, you're going to be closed for a week. We're going to be closed for two weeks. Uh, are you going to be closed till Christmas? You know, how can people plan if, if there's no timeline given? You could just say, okay, uh, let's look at this. We look at the cases. We look at the number of people affected by this COVID. Uh, and, uh, but in two weeks, we can review this. We're in, because people are making plans for Christmas. They're making plans for, you know, for their work and everything. So this is not helping us at all. It's not helping the people. Uh, because everything is out in the air right now, and uh, uh, we have no exact timeline to, to say that this is what it's going to be. So it's affecting a lot of people, and this is what uh, the people who made the decision have to know, that it's affecting a lot of young kids. Uh, if you look at the uh, uh, statistics and, of course, what the uh, uh uh, the doctors association is uh, the medical association is saying uh, if you keep people indoors for too long you you're affecting their mental health and that's going to be a huge impact here in in this area so we have to be very careful how we approach this but i i think if they're going to reconsider um and make some uh, changes um or revisions or concessions I'm sure that we can live with. If we're, if we're left the way we were Monday night or Tuesday night or Wednesday night, yes, we can operate and we're probably going to be in, in good shape. But if we um, um, adopt the new uh, restriction um, guidelines, we're, we're, you know, I, I don't want to say, but we, we're not going to be around, Mike, and uh, this is for... The problem is, you know, who's going to be um, responsible if, if this place, um, uh, if we lose the facility? I say, who's going to be responsible? You know, a lot of people will be asking this question. 
uh, for other facilities, you know, because, as you know, this is not, um, uh, this is a local, um, a local order. It wasn't, uh, and, and we have no financial res, uh, recourse or assistance from the province or federal government because this is a municipal um, directive. So, and it's going to mean a loss of a lot of money, uh, you know, close to a million dollars. So we, we can't sustain this, you know, we, because we're a non-for-profit. We, you know, we, we don't keep profits over the year. We have to use them up. So it, it's going to be, you know, we, we just don't know what it's going to do to us. But again, uh, you know, we're willing to sit down and talk with, uh, Dr. Mikey, hopefully tomorrow we have some better news to tell you. Well, that's when we should find out. He has said tomorrow afternoon, Tom, thank you for the very real side of things that you have given. We really appreciate the candidness and the time today. Keep safe. Yeah, thank you, Mike. You know that we're here for the kids, and that's what we've been saying all along. You know, like uh, we want the kids to be here. If they're in school and they're together, why not play sports? They, they, they should be in a, in a gym or somewhere here where we follow all the um, protocols. That's right. If you can make it happen safely, and I know a lot of planning has gone into doing that, then, uh, yeah, no, you're right. Let's, let's find a way to make it happen. Tom, thank you again. Thank you, Mike. That's Tom Partalis, president of the London Optimist Sports Center. They operate BMO Center, and he laid it out. You want to go under the current changes? The current modifications, the current orders that were issued yesterday, he says they'll be out of business. Plain and simple. So what kind of modifications can be made? Those are being worked out now, tomorrow. Should be announced tomorrow afternoon. Think about when advertising began that told us that drinking and driving was dangerous. We're going back decades I'm guessing over 30 years, and yet the numbers are not going down. If we had invested that much education in anything and said, okay, 30 years after the fact, where do we sit? And if we didn't sit at close to zero, or if we didn't see some kind of drastic improvement, you would say, okay, well, how is the advertising not working? Do we need different advertising? But we've tried absolutely everything. Everything. We've got some of the best creative minds who have thought about this. And now we're looking at a situation where in court we are going to see plea bargains for impaired driving cases, perhaps just to clear the courts. Let's talk about this whole thing, because today we had Daniela Lees from Kitchener by way of a London courtroom pleading guilty to four counts of impaired driving causing bodily harm. Joining us right now is the CEO of Mad Canada, Andy Murray. Andy, thank you for being here. Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. Andy, we go back at least 30 years on education that says don't drink and drive, right? Uh, yes, our organization started in 1990, so... Um... It's 30 years now, um, though I don't think our 
advertising budget was uh, or ads were that creative uh, in the initial <laughs> days. But yeah, certainly everybody knows and socially knows, culturally knows it's not okay to drink and drive or use drugs and drive. And yet we're not seeing this zeroed. We're not seeing this gone. In fact, I mean, it depends which statistics you're looking at. I was talking flatlining. We had Bill who called in and said the numbers show an increase. What do the latest numbers show? So if if you went back to 1980 and looked at the number of impairment-related fatalities on our highways, uh, it averaged about 60%. So six out of 10 fatalities were alcohol-related. If they included a driver under the age of 20, uh, it was 70%. So those numbers today um, for uh, the 60% would be uh, roughly around 25%, depending on where you live in Canada, um, and for the teens in the low 30s. So in a sense, we've reduced it by half. but like you said, is what's it going to take for that other half to come along and, you know, join uh, the rest of us that want free and sober drivers at all times on our highways and our roadways? So if we're looking at the stats, is the best way to say that maybe the, the drop-off has stagnated some? Is, is that where we're seeing either the flat line or, or the show in the curve where it's gone up a little bit? Is it, you know, depending on which numbers you look at? Um, no, actually, we have really good numbers. Like we, we look at the fatalities, which is kind of the gold star. So you can see a lot of good trend data, especially if you're looking over a couple of decades of data. So, in fact, when you look at the alcohol related numbers up to when this pandemic happened, because something different has happened since COVID, um, we were seeing dramatic drops in alcohol related, but it was being offset by an enormous increase in drug-related. So we almost, you know, and it was around the same, you know, we started to see the peaking of the drugs prior to legalization because, you know, I think in Canada, long before legalization of cannabis, we had stopped, you know, enforcing a lot of our drug-related laws, especially the ones dealing with cannabis. And so the number of cannabis-related driving incidents really spiked up. So we didn't even get a chance to celebrate the alcohol success because the drug stuff is offset. And then uh, with this pandemic, um, initially we saw a little bit of a decrease because people weren't out, people weren't driving. And now we've seen a real spike in a number of areas right across the country where you know, impaired driving charges are greater than the last couple of years. And it, there's no rhyme or reason. Uh, urban centers are reporting this. Uh, rural areas, uh, Prince Edward Island, for example, reported out last week that they're overrun with impaired driving. And that's since pandemic. And the only thing we can do to explain that piece of it is we know, and it's been well reported, that consumption of alcohol and cannabis is up as people are coping with the pandemic, um, but maybe they're making silly mistakes and driving impaired as well. Hmm. We're talking with Andy Murray, who's the CEO of Mad Canada. 
One of the other things that we have seen mentioned is the idea that we've got a backlog of court cases where you have people who are charged with impaired driving, and now, because of that backlog of court cases, we could see a lot of plea bargains. What do you make of that? Well, we were involved in the discussions with the government. Um, So there was – impaired driving is always one of the most uh, – crimes that, you know, is part of the court docket. And so when the courts closed down, uh, police continued to charge people with impaired driving. So there was a backlog before the pandemic. They continued to charge during the pandemic. None of those were being processed. And we have a support uh, Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court of Canada uh, ruling uh, a number of years ago. It's called Jordan. And basically what it means is if you have an over 80 charge, which means it's not impaired driving bodily harm or causing a death. So it's what we would call, you know, you're caught simply for drinking over the limit. Uh, That case from the time the police charge you to its resolved in court can take no longer than 18 months or it's thrown out of court for an untimely delay. So when ourselves and the chiefs of police started to look at this, if we didn't make some adjustments uh, to the number of cases going through, then we risk, you know, thousands of these being thrown out. And that was totally unacceptable to all of us. So what we did was in certain circumstances, um, like repeat offenders, people with drugs, people with children in their car, people with a terrible driving record, they weren't eligible for this plea bargain. These were generally people that had a low blood alcohol level and generally would be in the court system for the first time. They were given uh, a plea bargain for careless driving um, and also an additional alcohol interlock or a back-on-track type of um uh, requirement, which is related to impaired driving, so that they, it wasn't just for uh, driving offense, that they also was something related to impaired driving. And so there was about 6,000 cases, maybe about 1,200 to 1,500 people would be eligible, so the vast majority wouldn't. And this was a one-time only situation, because we find this offensive uh, as an organization, but there's nobody to blame. We, we had a pandemic and our whole world changed. So, you know, this is something that our organization in normal times would never agree to. And same with the police. But what can we do? I mean, it's affected every part of our lives and every single thing that we do in our society. And it's not a surprise it affected impaired driving in the courts. Right. In terms of messaging... Does it send some kind of message at all, or, or is this something that that won't have traction like that in your mind? Well, the thing is, it's limited, so it's over. It only was for those people that were clogged up in the court. So if you get charged gotcha. with impaired driving today, like, don't expect a deal because it's not going to happen. And a number of police chiefs in, in Ontario have been on social media the last week as the story has been covered and said, don't think you're going to get a, a plea bargain in my community. So we're starting to turn that messaging. I really sincerely appreciate, you know, the various chiefs and and senior police officials that are getting that word out that, 
this is not forever. It was one time. The other thing is, yeah, I mean, you, you can't say it's, it's the wrong messaging because, you know, it's a criminal offense and you get a highway traffic offense. That's not the right message. But considering the circumstances, um, you know, temporarily we can live with this. And, and I know that some of the families that have been impacted personally are really upset with this because, you know, they they don't want this happening. They don't want somebody coming back that got one of these as a repeat offender. So, you know, it's a very, very difficult um, choice to make these decisions. But we also would have been criticized if we didn't support it and 6,000 impaired drivers walked. Well, I guess that's that's kind of the way we've got to look at it. We really appreciate the time, Andy. Thank you so much for the job that you do. And uh, here's hoping that, that we can see numbers continue to go down someday, that we can realize the danger that that is exhibited. And uh, and that's something that, that just needs to happen. I, I don't think it's it's any clearer than that. It just needs to happen. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. That's Andy Murray, CEO of Mad Canada. So if we do go back, you know, I, I, lo- I look at a, an advertising campaign or an education campaign and you think if it started 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago, you better be down at zero. We're not. We've kind of halved it. How do you get the other half? And that's a question even Andy, the CEO of Mad Canada, has to ask about because there isn't an answer. Not long ago, just earlier this morning, we had a fantastic donation made that we wanted to draw attention to right now. We were just talking about food waste and food security with Dr. Paul Vanderwerf. The idea that most households are throwing out $600 worth of food. Could you imagine if that could actually go to somebody who needed it? Or could you imagine if you didn't have the loss of that money in your pocket? $600 worth of food. Because we've got too much And it's too easy to get. Well, for some people, that's not the case. It is too much, and it's really hard to get. And that is where the London Food Bank has come in. And the London Food Bank has done such an amazing job for the last while. But they they can't do it on their own. And this morning, we had a little something that happened involving the London Chamber of Commerce and the London Food Bank that we need to know more about. Joining us right now is the CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce, Jerry McCartney. Jerry, how are you? I'm just great, Mike. How about you? Not bad. We understand that you were a part of something pretty special this morning. Can you outline what took place, please? Yeah, it's a bit of a COVID story, and it's a bit of a, a lemonade from lemons story. So I'll share with you what happened last March. Uh, as we always do, we had uh, 1,200 plus tickets sold to our annual business achievement awards, uh, and then a week before the awards, of course, COVID hits, and we had to shut down our plans and, and actually postpone the event. The problem is everyone had already paid for their tickets, sponsors had already donated their money, films were already in the bank from the various uh, finalists, etc., and all the videos were done, but we had nowhere to put them. So we decided to have the event in September. And as you know, you're limited to 50 people at these venues. So we had 50 people attend the the gala event. uh, And we streamed the event to the other 1,000 plus uh, who had registered to see the event uh, being streamed online. Uh, Here's the good news. We gave our ticket holders some options as to what to do with the food portion of their ticket. 
Clearly, we couldn't serve them the dinner, but we wanted to make sure that they either had an opportunity to have some dinner and, and either have it delivered to their home, their office, etc., or go to their favorite uh, meeting place and have it delivered safely with social distancing and all that in place. Uh, and the other option was this, that you could take the, the amount of money uh, that was otherwise dedicated to the food portion of your ticket and have it donated to Business Care's food drive, which, as you may know, uh, does a lot of great work on behalf of the food bank. And 100% of the dollars that they take in go to our area food bank, who you just alluded to, do a fantastic job of looking after those folks that need food and are in desperate need of that food on a, on a short-term or long-term basis. So happy to report. This morning, uh, we presented a check to Wayne Dunn of Business Care's Food Drive and to Glenn Pearson of the, of the food bank for $48,321. And I am so proud of our members and the ticket purchasers for the, the Business Achievement Awards for having the corporate social responsibility to look forward and say, where could I, I better use those dollars to make sure our community is being looked after? And, and I can tell you that 800 of them decided that that was the best route for their money, and they donated those funds to the Business Cares Food Drive. How incredible is that? Jerry, as you were outlining that story, I think we, we all knew that it was going to come in a donation and maybe a donation amount, and I think we were all trying to guess what that donation amount might be. $48,000, nobody got that high. I know. and In fact, we kept that from Wayne and Glenn just to sort of tease them a little bit when we... We unveiled the check uh, at our office this morning. Uh, while they both had masks on, I can guarantee you their jaws dropped uh, quite significantly, even through the mask. So we were quite happy to be able to do that on behalf of our members, and I, I'm pretty sure they were quite happy to receive it. Wow, the things that they will be able to do with that kind of money. And right there, I mean, that's, that's you could have had people saying, yeah, just uh, give me the refund. Just uh, I'll, I'll just take the money back. You know, that could have happened. Instead, we get the generosity of this community again. Love this yeah. story. It's win-win all the way around. So, I mean, obviously the food bank benefits from it. The people who use the food bank benefit our, our members must feel terrific about it because it was it was their generosity that made this happen i think the other thing and wayne dunn said it best this morning too their campaign usually doesn't get underway for another four or five weeks with this as a catalyst as, as sort of a launching pad if you will for others to think about how they might pivot there's that word again uh to sort of change their strategy if you can't have a big golf tournament you can't have a big event that would otherwise you know, ch channel money through to the food bank. Think about how you can do it virtually. That's what we did. It worked for us, fortunately. Hopefully it'll be a, a catalyst for others. Great. That is absolutely great. Well, Jerry, thank you for spearheading this, and thank you to all of the members who have decided to go in this direction. $48,000. That's phenomenal. So yeah, congratulations. Thanks, Mike. I That's... appreciate it. Thanks goes to all the members who uh, agreed to be so generous. We're so proud of them. Well, that's what it's all about right there. That is absolutely what it's all about. Jerry, keep doing the job that you do. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. That's Jerry McCartney, CEO of the London Chamber of Commerce. This is, as much as we go through days, and I don't know if you've had an evening like this, maybe you have, where you sit down 
and you're talking with your significant other. Kirsten and I were sitting there and just chatting last night, and we're talking about either family members of ours who are in pretty uncertain circumstances and what can we do for them, or we're talking about friends of ours who are in uncertain circumstances, and we're just kind of looking and saying, when, you know, when is this going to be over? When can we, instead of living in uncertainty, when can we get back onto a little more solid footing? And the answer is we don't know. And I, I'm sure you've had those conversations where you don't get to a resolution at the end because there's no resolution to get to. But you still wind up talking about it. And then, you know, maybe you give one of those people a call at the end of it. But in a case like yesterday where we hear that the Dream Lottery is, well, at that point it was approaching 85% sold out and it just started. Or in this case, where you've got a $48,000 donation to the food bank, that's something that doesn't have to happen. We could all sit and grumble and be mad. That's not what's happening. You've got people who, again, in tough times, are digging down and finding ways to, as Jerry points to it, pivot. Finding ways to pivot. That's what it's about. Jerry, thank you for that. And thank you to anybody who's bought tickets already for the dream lottery at dreamitwinit.ca because that's making a difference for healthcare and hospitals. Let's keep these stories coming because even if we can't have certainty of what's coming in life, maybe we can have certainty that no matter what is coming, we're still going to have things like this that take place that are at least cushioning some of this gigantic blow that everybody is taking. Some are feeling more of the brunt of that than others, but at least we can have things like this. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.